Welcome back to another episode of Nothing Off Limits. Since we're focusing on music this week, I'd love for you to check out Studio Automatic. They are a full-service online recording studio. They get top-notch session musicians and vocalists on your tracks. So if you don't have a band of your own, or you're a songwriter but not a singer, or you need a solid mix, whatever your needs are musically, check out this service. They've got packages starting at $2.99 for a fully produced song. Fantastic musicians. They're based in Nashville. Go to ladyfoxentertainment.com, click on the resources partners page, get more information. They're near the top of the page. And now I'm going to move on to the show featuring my friend, the incredibly talented Billy Vera. Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should. And welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. I am super excited because today I have Billy Vera on the show. I'm going to tell you about Billy. He was born William Patrick McCord. He is an American singer, songwriter, actor, author, and music historian. He has been a singer and songwriter since the 60s, his most successful record being At This Moment, a U.S. number one hit in 1987 and featured on the hit sitcom Family Ties. In 2008, Michael Bublé recorded the song on his album Crazy Love, which has sold over 8 million copies to date. Artists who have recorded Billy Vera's songs include Bonnie Raitt, Robert Plant, Fats Domino, The Shirelles, Lou Rawls, Tom Jones, and many, many more. Billy himself has sung the theme songs to hit series King of Queens, Empty Nest, and his tunes have been licensed time and again. And he's also been the voice of AM-PM commercials for over 17 years. Billy's career has spanned music, radio, television, and film, and he doesn't stop because he continues to perform out live with his group Billy Vera and the Beaters and Billy Vera's Big Band with his latest CD called Billy Vera Big Band Jazz. And he also has a book out entitled Vintage Neon, L.A., Los Angeles, 1979, which we'll talk about later today, as well as an upcoming autobiography and a documentary, Billy Does Not Stop. Go to his website for more information, see what's coming up with him with his appearances at BillyVera.com or BillyVeraBigBand.com. Welcome, Billy. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you on the show. You have so many great stories. I was like, how could I not have you on here? <laughs> <laughs> so you've done a lot in your life, I see. Well, I've been alive a long time, so you know, you gotta, a boy has to keep busy, right? <laughs> well, I want to go way, way, way back, and I want to know how it started. I mean, tell us about Little Billy. When did you know you wanted to be in the entertainment business? Well, I was around it all my life. You know, my both my parents were in show business. My dad was an announcer, mostly on uh, NBC in New York for about 30 years. Oh, wow. And my mother was a singer. Um, she, like you, she uh, had a solo career and as a background singer uh, on television. She was uh, one of the Ray Charles singers on the Perry Como show. Wow. And she was beautiful. Yeah. I saw her photos you posted on Facebook. Yeah, they say I take after her. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. So did they influence you then in terms of wanting to learn how to play instruments? Not so much, but I, I, I love show business. You know, I, I was around, you know, I 
I'd go with my mother to the TV shows that she was on, and I'd be in the in the dressing room with all the half-naked, beautiful dancers and singers, you know, I'm sitting on their laps while they pinch me and kiss me and everything when I was five, six years old. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Today they would call that uh, sexual abuse. But, you know, it sort of set me up for my future. And then sometimes I would go with my dad, you know, to and I'd watch him uh, in in the booth, you know, when they'd hand him scripts. There was no tape in those days. They'd he'd have to read everything live, no take two. Mm. And he, he would say, and now the NBC Nightly News, <laughs> or whatever he would say. Or sometimes he would do quiz shows, too. He'd be the announcer. You know, he'd do shows called, like, Concentration, oh, Tic-Tac-Doe. Yeah. And, the, you know, he, he was the guy that uh, Jack Barry would say, and now, Bill McCord, who's our next guest? Well, Jack, our next guest is a housewife <laughs> from New Jersey. You know, that <laughs> that's kind of great. Yeah. yeah, so you were around it early. So yeah, then what I, made you pick up the guitar or, the, or well, start playing the piano? I liked the drums at first, but I saw Chuck Berry on American Bandstand, and, uh, and I just wanted to be him. Hmm. You know, I thought he was the coolest guy, you know, he, he, and his songs were, oh, so great. And so, uh, you know, I, I got a guitar. I guess in uh, sophomore year of high school, I heard about a talent show. So my best friend, I taught him how to play a couple of songs on a guitar. So I got him and I taught this other boy uh, how to play two songs on my drums. And we went in there, you know, we sucked pretty bad. But we, and we had a, we had a friend up in the spotlight booth. So we told him to put pink and purple gels on us. And then we went down and we bought these cheap white jackets and we had black pants and we bought these cheap metallic uh, black shirts with little string ties like Chuck Berry wore on his album cover. And so we got 296 out of 298 votes uh, in the talent contest. (laughs) That's awesome. The other two votes went to this guy who should have really won because he was a very, very talented classical pianist named Germano Romano. Oh, God. Yeah, and his, I mean, in high school, his hands were insured for $100,000. What? He was like, yeah, he was great. But, you know, we, we had Flash, and we had, we, we had show, the showbiz thing down, so we won. Now, meanwhile, the priest that was the music teacher, he hated us. So to, to help to make us lose... He, he got like five guys from uh, the, the marching band and he made them into a Dixieland band <laughs> and they got zero votes. <laughs> and, and that teacher, he would avoid us the rest of our high school uh, careers. That's too funny. You had early training in the, in the whole like the glitz and glamour of it all, right? You people, bet. Yeah, people get swayed by what they see rather than what they hear most of the time. I'm afraid so. <laughs> so were your parents good with all of the stuff you were doing and, you know, getting the, the Chuck Berry thing going on? Yeah, they paid for lessons uh, on guitar and drums. And a little later, my mother took me down to her voice coach to teach me how to breathe properly. Hmm. So she was, she was good with that. And then they, uh, they introduced me to uh, her vocal coach, who introduced me to a manager who was in the same building down on Broadway. Jim Gribble was his name. 
And he managed all these doo-wop groups, you know, the the Earls and the Fiestas and the Del Satins and mm -hmm. the Dubs and, you know, all these different groups. And uh, he would take one act at a time and get them a record deal. They, they, they may or may not have a hit record. And that usually was the end of their career, that one hit record, because right. that's what it was back then. Well, I was next on his list, and then he dropped dead in his office one day. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I no longer had a manager. It wasn't meant to be. <laughs> that wasn't meant to be. Gribble was a no. <laughs> it didn't work out so good. And then, uh, you know, then I started, uh, I was asked to be in a high school band of guys that, when I was a junior, with these uh, seniors. Their singer had had uh, left to join the Navy, and uh, so they needed a singer. And they heard about me, and so I sang with them. They were the Pharaohs. Wow, that's a good and, name. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, yeah, we played all these church dances, you know. They used to give these church dances where, like, for a quarter or 50 cents, the kids could go. And, uh, and you know, they'd have either records or, or, or sometimes a band. And we became pretty popular around the area. In fact, we, we were so popular one time, <laughs> the, first, the first gig I ever did with the Pharaohs was in this big church hall, huge. And it was supposed to be Chuck Berry, but he got arrested, so he couldn't do it. <laughs> and, and Danny and the Juniors, who made At The Hop. Oh, yeah. And a, another local band that was great, and us. And so we were doing songs like Shout, you know, and What I Say. Well, during Shout, I was doing, I did a split, and my pants split. <laughs> and nobody could follow us after that. <laughs> you had a knack for getting attention. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love these stories. So I want to know about the songwriting. I mean, most people don't study it. How did you learn how to be such a prolific songwriter? I, I started out trying to write uh, simple doo-wop songs, you know, like the ones I liked. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wrote a I wrote a Christmas song. Uh, I was 14, and I, I listened to it today. You know, some doo-wop, many, many, many years later, some doo-wop group recorded it. No kidding. Something and you I, wrote when you were 14. Yeah. And I was surprised. I'm surprised looking back at that song that it was as well written as it was for a novice. You know, it had a, uh, lyrically, it went somewhere, you know, it was like beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, and it made sense. It had good images and, and all that stuff. And then we started working, I, I started working in professional bands, you know, in nightclubs. And there was a lot of nightclub work at that time because this was the era of the twist. And so, you know, every club suddenly became a twist club. Now, but but you were under 21. Oh, Yeah. So, but they were letting these bands come in or these acts come in that were underage? Well, the drinking age was 18. Oh, okay. So, and, and I, we, I snuck in at 17 at some of the clubs until they found out how young I was. But at 18, I made a, I made a real record that actually came out and became, it's what they used to call a regional hit. Mm -hmm. Yes. One side was, was, uh, it was, it was written by uh, Etta James and Harvey from the Moonglows. And it became uh, popular in, like, Connecticut. And it was number one in Pittsburgh and all that. Oh. And then years later, I found out that this, the other side, which I wrote, was, was like a top ten record in Texas and Louisiana, because I guess it appealed more to that, you know, that part of the country. Interesting. 
Yeah, but you know, never made any money off it. And then we started playing these Times Square clubs. You know, those mafia clubs. Mm, I remember this story. Well, there's a couple of those stories, but. One of them, the one that has to do with songwriting, was one night this this mafia guy named Moish. Moish? Yeah, Morris Spokane. He had a little record label named Spokane Records. And uh, and he came in with a table full of people. He liked the way I sang. So at the end of the night, he told this uh, call girl that was with him to go home with me. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and she was so beautiful. I mean, she was even younger than me. I mean, she was like... I don't know, maybe 18, maybe maybe 17, I don't know. So I, they left, and I said to her, I said, listen, you know, you don't have to go home with me if you don't want to. I, you know, I don't want you under those circumstances, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell him you were great when he comes in and blah. She said, no, no, I want to go with you. I want to bring you. I like you. So she she took me with her, and, she, you know, one thing led to another, and she she wanted me to be her boyfriend. Wow. She was going to get, she said, yeah, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get us an apartment. You can live with me. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I don't want to do that. But she's the one who said, you write great songs. You should, you should take them around. The call girl. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. She was pretty astute. She was, she was exquisitely beautiful. I mean, uh, she was not like a street hustler. She right. was like, you know, a high, high, and the call girl, mm-hmm. and uh, and so she and she had a lot of connections, and she she sent me to a couple of you know publishers and stuff. So Billy, aren't you glad then that she went home with you that night? <laughs> I am very glad. The first publisher I went to, they they took he took two of my songs, and he gave me thirty five bucks a piece for them, uh, you know, in advance. Paid for the, um, me to come in with my band and make demos. So one of them I I, I wrote with this. New girl in mind is Dion Warwick chick. Oh, just Dion. <laughs> well, she was new, you know, and I did. She had had one one hit record. I thought she was great, and I thought she could sing this one song. So I told him I didn't know that Burt Backrack and Hal David had her all tied up. So a couple weeks later, he, the publisher calls me, and he says, "Hey, I got a I got a record on one of your songs." I said, "Oh yeah, which one?" He said, "Mean Old World." I said, "Oh, Dion Warwick." He said, no, no, Ricky Nelson. I said, Ricky Nelson, he's white. (laughs) So he says, you ungrateful little putz. He said, Ricky's going to do your song five weeks in a row on the Ozzy and Harriet show. You know, you're going to make performance money. It's going to be the single, the A-side. You know, you're virtually guaranteed a hit record. But you were mad that it went to Ricky. (laughs) I was mad because it didn't go to Dion, yeah. But... (laughs) You know, because I was stupid. I was young, like everybody's is. It's young. Yeah, yeah. So the first song I ever took to a publisher became a hit. And I said, wow, not realizing it's beginner's luck. I thought it was just going to be an easy business. Of course, right. I thought that it was not as easy as that. In those days, it was a cottage industry. If you had a hit record, a record on the charts, everybody on Broadway knew it. And so so you could get into any any company or publishing company or whatever anybody would see you because you know rock and roll was still kind of new and all these these old guys over 40 you know they they didn't know anything and they knew they didn't know anything so if you were you know if you were 21 you know they thought you knew something (laughs) i think that still happens today yeah nothing changes really and so finally i got a gig 
as a staff songwriter with a publisher that was owned by CBS in Columbia uh, called April Blackwood Music. And the guy there, the boss there, he said, I'm going to put you with this fellow named Chip Taylor because you, you know, you you wrote a great song there, but you 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 need some seasoning. Mm. And he can, you know, he'll he'll show you what the ropes. So Chip, who later went on to write songs like Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning. Wow. Great songwriter. And so we started writing together. And the first thing we, we wrote together was a song called Make Me Belong to You, which became a summertime hit for Barbara Lewis uh, on Atlantic Records. And that was our entree to the, the head man up there, uh, Jerry Wexler. You just kept having luck after luck, good luck after luck. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we decided, let, let's write a duet for maybe a couple of Atlantic artists who will record a duet. Mm-hmm. So we wrote this song called Storybook Children, and we made a demo of it, and uh, we took it to Wexler, and he pounded his fist on the desk and, and uh, declared it an effing smash. <laughs> What was it about? What is that song about? It's kind of about adultery, you know, oh. which, was, which was a new subject. And, and it was almost like really not, not uh, adultery not acted upon. Oh, uh, okay. So like emotional infidelity. Yeah, like, you, you know, you, you, you're, these two people are in love, but she's got, she's got a husband and a baby. And was, that, was that something that you actually experienced? No, I, there used to, I used to drive through uh, White Plains and every, every once in a while I'd see this really pretty girl pushing a baby carriage and that sort of uh you know stuck with me and that that was in my mind the day we wrote the song mm, that's awesome well and he said he said listen get rid of the girl in the demo and i'll record you on atlantic records i said wow that I and mean, that was my favorite label you know ray charles and oh, you yeah. know, the drifters the coasters bobby darren all these great artists so this was like a dream come true mm-hmm. so I was friendly with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells because they were on Atlantic at that time. We, we were the house band at this nightclub up on the border of uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, every weekend we, we, played, we played behind hit record acts and did two dance sets. And we played with the Bluebells a lot. Wow, that had to be awesome. Oh, yeah. We played with a lot of great acts. I mean, everybody from the Isley Brothers, the Little Anthony Imperials, the Shirelles. Anyway, I called up this girl in the Bluebells named Nona Hendricks, and I said, you want to make a record with me on Atlantic? And she said, yeah. So uh, we, she came up from Philly, and, and we recorded Storybook Children. And then their manager got into the act, and he, he was afraid that she'd quit the group if we had a hit. And meanwhile, Patty and the other girls were all for it because... Their manager was so cheap, he didn't have a band for them. They And they had really difficult music. I mean, Danny Boy and D-flat and, you know, You'll Never Walk Alone and Be Natural. I mean, you know, really hard music. Yeah. And, and they told us, they said, there's only two bands in the whole East Coast that can play our music properly. So, you know, they, what they wanted, they wanted Nona and me to have a record and then have me as their guitar player so that at least somebody could play their music right <laughs> when they when they toured. Just self-serving a little bit, but at least you had the support. But why not? But it didn't it didn't work out. So then we auditioned 20 more girls and they all sounded like they should be singing Stephen Sondheim songs, you know. 
<laughs> not quite what we were looking for. And this was you and Chip? Yeah. Deciding, okay. And so finally Wexler said, listen, we just uh, got this girl, Judy Clay, and uh, she's a cousin of Dion Warwick and uh, sang in the gospel group, and she's pretty great. And uh, Why don't you listen to her? So she comes in, and she was about 14 months pregnant, and she had a chip on her shoulder the size of Wyoming. <laughs> But she sang her ass off. And so after she left, they said, well, you know, what do you think, man? Do you think she sings great, but can you handle that personality? And I said, listen, and I recognized that underneath that gruff exterior was a scared little girl. Sure. And and you got to remember, Dion had had, a, had had hits by this time. Dion's sister, Dee Dee Warwick, had had hits. Dion and Dee Dee's aunt, Sissy Houston, had the sweet inspirations. Everybody in the family was successful except Judy. And, and Judy had been the lead singer of their gospel group. Oh, that had to be so f- Of course she had a chip on her shoulder. You bet. So she was bitter. Anyway, so we recorded it with her. The record came out and, uh, and became a hit record. A hit record on the black charts and the top 40 charts. It's amazing. So then we get a gig at the Apollo Theater. But meanwhile, our picture hadn't been out yet. Uh, oh boy. So we, the way the Apollo worked in those days, it was a seven day a week house and five shows a day. And the, the first show of the new week was on Friday. And so Thursday night, after the last week's last show, they would have rehearsal in the basement with the house band. And so we're down there and the, the the stage manager was a fellow named Honey Coles of the famous tap dance mm-hmm. team, Atkins. And, uh, and so Honey, seeing me, <laughs> they gave us the lousiest spot. You know, we were on second. You know, the first act is always a flashy choreographed act. And, and then the newest or the worst act is on next. Oh, yeah. Better, 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 better star. Okay. So we go on second. And he said, listen, he said, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. He said, so what I want you to do is, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left. Now, you let her take three steps out from the wings before you make your entrance, and then watch what happens. So, boom, that's what I did. I count one, two, three, boom, enter. And 1,500 people gasp. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> and, I, and, and I hear people going, that's him? That's him? You know? <laughs> Because it had been played all over the radio by now. Yeah, but there was no picture of us. <laughs> yeah, it's not like nowadays where everything's all over social media, you know. And videos. Right, right. It was a big mystery. There was nothing there. So anyway, we went over great. And after the first show, he comes up to our dressing room and he says, listen, I'm changing up the show. I'm putting you two on right before the star. He says, because ain't nobody going to follow you two. And so that became our, our spot. You know, we became very, very popular out there. That's awesome. You were accepted at the Apollo. I remember watching the um, the old Apollo shows from the 80s, and the crowd was rough, you know? They were not forgiving. No, they were not. They, they, they had seen the greatest black acts in showbiz history on that stage, and they, they were very demanding. Yes. Especially, I used to stay on Wednesday night and watch the amateur shows after the last show. And uh, boy, it was pretty. But I'll tell you, they were fair. 
Because one night, there was a, this was right after Otis Redding had died. And uh, Honey Cole says, uh, our next act, come on out. And he, he, this guy lumbers out on stage with a big square head like Otis and clumsy. And, and uh, so Honey says, and, uh, okay, young man. He says, uh, what, now what's your name? My name is David Redding. Boo, boo. Uh. They don't like him already. Well, what are you going to sing, David Redding? I'm going to sing Try a Little Tenderness, which, of course, was Otis's big, <laughs> biggest hit. Boo! Now they're ready to murder this poor kid. So, so he does the song, and he doesn't sound anything like Otis. He sounds like himself. And he turned that audience around, and they loved him. Mm-hmm. And he won. So that's, I always tell that story to illustrate that, that they were demanding, but they were fair. And that's what you did, too, by just going out there. You weren't scared at all. Unlike a lot of, a lot of acts told me that I had worked with, they, said, they always would say, oh, man, the first time I worked the Apollo, I, my knees were shaking, I was sweating. I, I, I didn't, for one moment, feel afraid. I, I felt like I belonged, hmm. you know? I, I don't know why. But I, I just went out there. I just recently, within this last week, as a matter of fact, uh, saw some footage of us. Oh. From the Apollo. That's amazing. This, yeah, the, these, these guys are doing a documentary on me. And, and, I, and this kid that shot some footage got in touch with me. On what? Because it's not like you had smartphones back then. No, it was Super 8, you know, a crummy little camera. So he was just there to see the show? Well, he was there because of me. I was dating his sister. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I was living with his sister. He was one of the chiffons, you know, Dulang, Dulang, Dulang. Nice. And uh, and he was he was the younger brother, and he he eventually went on to a, a a very good career as a film editor. But this he was still a teenager, and he had his little Super 8 camera, and he came to the theater, and he shot us from the audience. One show, and then uh, one of the, the second or third show, he came and shot us from the wings. That's awesome. So it looks like you have different angles. Yeah, and then he shot me in front of the theater, and he shot some footage in the dressing room, and it's just awesome. I mean, you'll never see Apollo footage. That is so great. So now you're a big star in New York. Um, you've played the Apollo. You've been highly accepted there. You're playing all the time. So so where's where's the move now? What, what does Billy do now? Well, uh, Judy was signed to Stax Records, you know, the label that had Sam and Dave and all those. I was signed directly to Atlantic. Stax was distributed by Atlantic at that time, and then their contract expired, and so we could no longer record together. Wexler called me up, and he said, listen, he told me what had happened, and he said, but don't worry. He said, I found a song for you uh, to sing by yourself. Said it's on a Bobby Goldsboro album. Bobby had just had a huge hit called Honey, and uh, and this, he said that I found out the song's not going to be the single, and uh, so I, I want you to record it. He said I'm going to send the album up to the theater. You listen to it, and you tell me if you want to do it, and you know tell me what key you want to do it, and I'll have Arif Mardin write a chart. Wow. For full orchestra. Wow. So when do you finish the Apollo? I said Thursday night. He said okay, nine o'clock. I'll have the studio ready. He said, because other people are going to record this song, too, on other labels. And so I, I recorded it. We recorded it on a Friday morning. Over the weekend, by Monday morning, he had 45s with typed up labels, test pressings, at every station in the country. 
<laughs> wow. That's how fast Atlantic Records could work in those days when, when wow. he wanted to happen. Yeah. So it became a hit record. Now I got it, my first solo hit. And all the other labels were like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. They, you, know, they, you, you couldn't beat Atlantic. What was this song? It was called With Pen in Hand. Okay. Was it a ballad? I don't think I've ever heard that song. Yeah, it's a tearjerker, man. It's mm. a, about a, a marriage breaking up. and Boy. Yeah. You know, adult shit for a 23-year-old. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know. So then, I, you know, in those days, you, you, they, you didn't do an album first. You did a single. And if the single became a hit, then they let you do an album. Because you, the sales of your single would pay for the album, even if it flopped. So it was not, not a gamble for them. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, it was good business. Now, you know, nine out of ten acts that they sign fail, and they do an album, and it's an expensive loss. Mm-hmm. So the second time we worked at the Apollo, you know, I'm not going to do with pen in hand because I got Judy Clay up there, and w- what do I do with her? She was great with me. You know, I had ne- I never had a, pr- a crossword with her, ever. And so I, I, I gave her a song that Chip and I wrote, and... And then I found an Alan Toussaint song that I liked a lot, and and I suggested that, and that ended up being the only solo chart record she ever had. When we when she came back to Atlantic, it was like a year later. Got pick of the week on every black station in the country. The Apollo wanted us back, and we hadn't been there in well over a year. So Judy says, "No," she says. My cousin Dion makes more money every time she goes back to the Apollo. I said, Judy, I said, we haven't had a hit record in over a year. I said, your cousin Dion has three more hits every time she plays the Apollo. Right. That's why they give her more money. No, I ain't going. So that that got Wexler really pissed, and he just dropped her from the label. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that was the end, you know, and nothing came off the album. Uh, on my solo album, and then my producers, they, they got called up in their uh, their Air Force Reserve unit. Uh, I, I got another offer from this guy Creed Taylor, the big jazz producer who was just starting his label. You got lucky. You kept getting lucky once again because it's like all these people are leaving or you're being like contractually unable to work with them or whatever, and then something new always falls into your lap. That's what I'm hearing so far. This didn't turn out so good. You know, I decided not to go with him, and so I was without a record deal now. By this time, it's like, what, 1970, and the culture was changing, and the music Mm. was changing drastically, and there was really no place for what the, what was called a blue-eyed soul singer anymore. What was I going to do? I, I couldn't go heavy metal, you know? What else was going on? I think there was, like, the whole, like, folk music stuff, too, right? Yeah, and that ain't me. <laughs> right, I know that. By a long shot. And Funk was getting really big at that time. Yeah. A little later, you'd have Casey and the Sunshine Band would be the white boy doing funk. Right. But that, that hadn't happened yet. You know, they're just, I I couldn't figure out for the next nine years where to fit. Disco came in, I couldn't do that. I saw what happened to a lot of my other soul music friends, you know, trying to prostitute themselves in in disco, and it didn't work for them. It's interesting how the movement of, like, whatever's trendy, right? Like, whatever's in fashion could actually ruin a career. Yeah, styles change, and if, if you're attached to a certain style, or if you really can't figure out 
a style where you're comfortable or if people will change will accept you changing styles right that's a big part of it yeah if they if they know you as one thing they, they may not accept you as something else mm-hmm so what did you do during that period? Is that when you started just kind of taking a different route and doing acting gigs? No, not yet. No, I was still in New York, and uh, I, I was doing survival gigs. Playing, I was playing six, seven nights a week in crummy clubs. There, were, in the early seventies, there was a big oldies revival in New York. I, I would have the house band on a lot of these uh, oldies shows, mm. the doo wop shows. Mm-hmm. I put together a little trio that I played so I could play these crummy clubs and not have to charge much money and still, you know, get by. And occasionally somebody would put out a record on me, none of which did anything. So it was it was a really hard, hard time. What was going through your head? Were you worried about um, your future at this time? You know, I don't think I thought that far in advance. I, I just kept trying and trying. Because that was your life. I mean, music was your life. So you, you, there was nothing else. I never had a straight job in my life, except when I was 16, I was a busboy for you know a year. Mm-hmm. At one of the really low points, I'm playing out in New Jersey at some Ramada Inn for two weeks. So one night, I, I come off stage after a set, and waitress comes over. She says, that fellow over there with, sitting there with his wife I'd like to buy you a drink. So I go over there, crazy looking guy with crazy eyes, you know, big head. And he sa- he shakes my hand. He says, uh, L. Russell Brown, I wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. And I'm like, how nice for you, you know. And and, uh, and he says, you know, Vera, you're a great, great songwriter. You're one of the greatest singers, but you never make any money. <laughs> he said, everybody knows how great you are, but you never make a dime. He says, me, I make a lot of money and nobody respects me. <laughs> So so he says, you know what? He says, we ought to write together. I, I could teach you how to make money and you could show me how to get respect. So I, I figured I'd give it a shot. You know, I started going over to his house and he had so much energy, this guy. Sometimes we'd write three songs in one day. Oh, my gosh. You know, not all good. Right. <laughs> Throughout all of this, uh, you know, like everybody that does something well, he, he wanted to do, try something else. And he wanted to be a record producer. So he got a gig producing Nancy Sinatra, of all people. Wow. This this is quite a while after these boots are made for walking. Oh, right, right. Because this is like well into the 70s now. Yeah, it's like 76, maybe. So she needed to make a comeback. Exactly. So he says, so listen, I got to go pick up my wife at the hairdresser. He says, see if you can start something while I'm gone. We'll finish it when I come back. So I'm thinking, what the hell do I write for Nancy Sinatra? My God. Oh, she got this famous father. I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say. You know, lines like that. <laughs> I finished the song in 20 minutes. He comes back. He falls in love with the song. He says, oh, I got to record this with her. This is a number one song if I ever heard one. So now I'm excited. And so he plays it for her, you know, the next day. Or, and she hated the song. Uh... She hated it. So he said, he comes back and he's really pissed. He says, you got to do something with this song, man. He said, just to prove me right. <laughs> so that got me all worked up. So my friend had this little country band up in Connecticut, and he had a girl singer that had a pretty nice voice. Well, as it turned out, she had this nice voice, but she was lazy, and she didn't learn the song properly. We recorded her on the song, and everywhere we, we took the tape, it was, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. Everywhere. Got turned down after turned down after turned down. Finally, the last guy on my list is this guy, Charlie Koppelman. Play it for Charlie. He says, love the song, hate the girl. He said, but we're recording Dolly next week. He said, wow. give, me the, give me the song for her. And 
I'll guarantee you it'll be the single. I didn't trust Charlie. That's why he was the last one on my list. And I said, give me some money, Charlie, and uh, put it in writing. Yeah. So he did. And he had his girl write me a check. I didn't even look at it, see how much it was. I figured a couple hundred bucks would be great. I take it, going down the elevator, and my little girlfriend was with me. And she could. She said, I can't wait. Give me that. Give me that check. Let me look at it. She says, holy <laughs> baby. Uh, she said, she said, he gave you $2,500. Well, in 1978, $2,500 was a fortune yeah. to me. I said, I guess he's serious. <laughs> you know. So sure enough, he recorded it with Dolly. Now, in the interim, I had a gig in St. Croix with my little band for six weeks. It was This club was owned down there on the wrong side of the island where the tourists didn't go. <laughs> it was owned by this, these, these dope dealers that were on the lam from the feds. Oh, my God. <laughs> How did you get wrapped up in that? Well, they were just guys that used to come to the clubs, you know. Oh. So they, they'd bring all, all their favorite bands down to entertain them for six <laughs> weeks at a time. It was a great gig. Didn't pay much money, but you'd get out there on the beach all day. It was yeah. Great. In the middle of winter. So I get a I get a phone call somehow because there was hardly any phones on that side of the island. And it was my old manager from the 60s. He said, I got you, I got you a deal, publishing deal. Get, get out here as soon as you can. So I, I finish up the gig and uh, and I, I go to L.A. And I'm playing at this moment in front of his whole staff of uh, guys that work at a published company. And I look around afterwards and Eddie's got tears coming down his cheeks. And I said, wow, maybe this song has something. When did you write that song? I started it in 77. I, I had met this girl. First time I saw her up there at a table with a guy and another couple. And then the second time we played there, she was not with a guy. And somebody introduced us and we, we started seeing each other. So she's telling me about breaking up with the dude and how he suffered over me, you know, because he loved me so much and I, I thought he was going to kill himself and all this. So I, I, I wrote the first two thirds of the song from what I perceived as his point of view. Wow. Right. But I couldn't finish it. I could not finish it, man. So I usually when that happens, I, I toss it. But I, for some reason, I stuck it in my mother's piano bench. So we had this very intense, very hot affair for close to a year and then you know like any 20 year old she moved on and i was crushed i mean i lost 30 pounds and i was break up with my life and that's when i i, I figured out how that song ended mm. and i wrote the last verse of at this moment that's and amazing that's, that song yeah. that song spanned a couple years then mm -hmm. so then eddie offered me a job with warner Warner Brothers Music, now Warner Chapel. It wasn't really a job, it was a co-publishing deal. I'd, I'd be half publisher and you know I'd be the writer. But he said, the only thing is you have to move out to California. I said, well, you know, I think I've used up all my, all my good luck in New York. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you said the 70s were a terrible time for you. So oh. this must have been like, great. You were like, okay. Yeah, so January of 79, I, I drove out with everything I owned except my record collection in my car and stayed with a friend and went to Warner Brothers up on Sunset Boulevard every every day mm -hmm. and would write songs just like I did in the 60s, at, you know, in New York. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Fresh and then, start. Yeah, and then, with, and then I ran into my old bass player who had come out here about three years earlier, and he says, what are you doing on the weekend? I said, I don't know. I don't know anybody, man. You know, he said, well, why don't you come out? 
to the beach. He said, I, I play with some guys, guys that play sessions, some really good guys. You know, come out and check out the band. And these guys were good. And he, so he, he got me to come up and sing. One night we're out in Westwood at the movies and we're seeing all these little college girls, you know. <laughs> and, you know, Chucky's chick had just dumped him and you know, this other guy's wife had just left him and nobody had a girlfriend. And somebody, maybe it was me, maybe it was somebody else, said, uh, you know, I used to do pretty good when I had a band. Yeah, me too. Yeah. We, why don't we start a band? We'll meet girls. <laughs> so that's, that's how we started the Beaters. Oh, my gosh. It was to pick up girls. Yeah, you know, because we're now we're you know we're over thirty, man. You know, it's too old to be to be rock stars. You know, that's what we thought. You know, I was pushing thirty-five. You know, that's, oh boy, that's ancient, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, we started playing around the beaches, and then I'm I, I we had discovered this this restaurant called Maurice's Snack and Chat on Pico. It was a soul food place, and Maurice was a big heavy set black lady who had been the housekeeper and cook for a lot of movie stars, John Garfield, Loretta Young, you know, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, Sybil Shepherd. Wow. And, and, and now she owned this restaurant and it was new and she didn't really have a lot of customers. So a couple of us would just go down there and, and, and eat, and watch her TV with her and get her to tell us stories about the old days in, in Hollywood. And, but, the guy that first brought me there was the guy who eventually became my music agent, Danny Robinson. And Danny's father managed Doc Severinsen, who had the house band on Johnny Carson. Yeah, yeah. So next thing you know, all these stars started coming there, show business people. <laughs> now this little dump of a restaurant became like an in place. The hot spot, yeah. We, we, we always were, like she called us her starting crew, so we always got a table. Aww. So one night I'm in there, and I get up to go to the bathroom, and I tripped over Suzanne Plachette's foot. Now, Maurice comes out. She sees this, and she's a little bit tipsy. And she says, Billy Vera, why you step on that lady's foot? I said, well, I, 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 I. And then this guy comes over, and he says, excuse me, did she say Billy Vera? I said, yeah. He said, my name's Matt Kramer. I run Monday nights at the Troubadour. And uh, I hear you got the best band in L.A. I said, well, I haven't heard any other bands in L.A., but we're pretty good. <laughs> he, said, he said, well, how would you like to play Monday nights? Uh, I'll give you a shot on my hoop night. Well, that's like 20 minutes. I said, man, I can't bring 10 guys in there to play for 20 minutes. I said, I, I, but thank you. But he said, well, wait a minute. What if I bring you in at midnight and you can play as long as you want? And I said, well, that, that, could, that makes some sense. So Al, my manager, said, listen, do it. He said, you need to be seen in Hollywood. You need to be seen by the in crowd. The, the opinion makers, mm -hmm. he said, but do this. No flyers up and down Laurel Canyon, no advertising, nothing. He said, it's got to be word of mouth. He said, because those, he says, those opinion makers, they're just as stupid as anybody else. <laughs> said, they, they like to think that they're the one that discovers. Uh. He said, it's an ego thing with them. <laughs> and he was right. He said, it'll take you about six weeks to see if you really got something that, that they like. This is smart. I love this stuff. Yeah. So two weeks go by, and we got lines around the block at 11.45. Wow. And it stayed that way for a year straight, Monday night at midnight. It became like the Now, were you getting paid? Yeah, $6 a man a night. Yeah. Per person who came in or $6 per player in the band? 
six per player. Whoa. And how long did you play? Like two hours? We played until we got tired, you know? Wow. And uh, before long, every A&R guy from these record companies is coming in. And they're smiling and clapping their hands and stomping their feet. And they're loving it, right? But nobody is reaching for their their pocketbook or their checkbook mm -hmm. because there was this band called the knack that was popular they had a hit record they were all looking for another knack which is what a and r guys do right you know they they they, they they're afraid of anything original or different mm -hmm. if there's something selling they use that as the benchmark for everything else after that yeah so finally after all those acts that they signed failed which they always do then they're ready for something different and we were different in spades. Oh, yeah. So in one week, we got three offers right, a year later. And so we chose this company, Alpha, A-L-F-A, that uh, was a Japanese company that had opened up American offices in Hollywood. And I figured if we were going to be the first act on the label, we'd get the big push. Whereas if we were on a, you know, a Mercury or a Polygram or whatever, we would have got lost. What were the other two labels? I'm not sure. I think I think Polydor was one. Mm. I'm not sure who the other one was. But they were bigger. They were majors, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, f I knew we'd get lost on a label like that. So this way we'd get the play. And then Al said, he said, you know, your demos don't capture the excitement of the live band. He said, we should record you live, you know, like the old James Brown album. Yeah. And, uh, and so the company went for it. And we recorded a live album at the Roxy. Did three nights. We recorded three nights and did a video. Brought a three-camera shoot. Wow. Yeah, they were they were going for some money. They sent us to Tokyo. We won the gold prize at the Tokyo Music Festival, and and we got a little hit record out of it. You know, called "I Can Take Care of Myself." Now the follow-up was at this moment. However, <laughs> the head of promotion, who was a great guy, got into a tiff with the president of the company, and quit. And so. Oh my God. So there was nobody to promote at this moment. So it goes to like number 79, and that's the end of it. And shortly after that, you know, they signed a bunch of acts that didn't do anything. And the Japanese pulled the plug. And so now we're out we're without a record deal. This is unbelievable. I love these stories of a blue-eyed soul artist, Billy Vera. When we come back in part two, we're going to hear what Billy did to get out of this quagmire and how he got his career back on track. Thanks for listening and come on back for part two with Billy Vera. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.